It seems very fitting that on graduation Sunday we talk about training up the next generation. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about the relevance of that to us as an audience, as a congregation today before we jump into that too much. You can turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6. That's where we're going to be focusing today. Um, Prior to that, our church... I'm Phil Smith. I'm the youth intern here. Let me just say that to you. Our church very strongly believes in training up the children in our church. We love our kids. We believe it is the parents' primary responsibility to build into kids. The church is not here to supplement the parents' job. We are here to come alongside and encourage parents as they train the children of this generation. So how does this apply to you? You're saying, well, I'm not a parent. Maybe. I'm not a children's worker. How does this apply to me? I'm going to quickly talk about that first, and then we'll jump into where we're going. Jesus has just talked in Mark chapter 12. He talks to um, the rich man, and he tells him, you know, sell all you have, follow me. Rich man goes away very sad. Peter comes to him and says, Lord, we've given up everything. We've given it all up to follow you. And here's Jesus' response. Listen to this really carefully, because I think this drives to why we are all responsible for the children in our church. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms for my sake, and the gospel's sake, but that he will receive back a hundred times as much now and in the present age, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children... And farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. I think what this is teaching us is in the family of God, you actually have children allotted to you within the church. Each of you is involved in the lives of our kids here at this church. You've seen this in our church. There are numbers of people who've experienced the family life of our church. There are some of our older saints here who have gained children, not biologically, but have gained children through getting to know those younger in our congregation and have seen them help and encourage them in things that they may not physically be able to do as easily anymore. You've seen younger people in our congregation gain parents where they either had none, whether by choice of the parent or or death or whatever, or just an absence of good biblical parenting. They have gained father and mother figures that have taught them how to be godly men, godly women, godly husbands, godly wives, godly mothers, godly fathers, because we are part of the family of God Let me say one final thing here as we talk about this. There may be some of you who are really hurting here this morning. When you think of talking about children, that's something that God has not allowed for you. And I would suggest to you, I want to be very gentle but push here a little, that the very thing that is causing you pain possibly as you see children wandering these hallways and hear us talk about kids might actually be the very thing God has provided in your life to be the means of healing what he has taken from you in biological kids, he has given back a hundredfold in his family here. I would challenge you, do not pull away. Press in to the children of our church. Let's go to Deuteronomy 6. We'll read this together. If you would stand with me in honor to the word, we're not going to read through the whole chapter. We're just going to focus on verses 4 through 9 that will cover the whole chapter in our time together this morning. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray. Father, we see a a deep responsibility to each of us here today to be caring for the kids, for the youth, for the little ones of our church. We cannot do this of ourselves. We thank you that your word gives us everything we need to know how to care for them, to love them well, to train them up well. Lord, as we delve into your word today, that you would guide, instruct, and teach us that this generation might pursue you wholeheartedly, Father. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Deuteronomy is written by Moses. He's written four books prior to it, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers. And he says, here's in chapter 1, verse 5, His whole goal, Moses undertook to expound this law. He's been given the law back in Exodus 20. Deuteronomy is expounding upon it. He is trying to explain to Israel better what does it look like to live out being in covenant relation with your God. How do you do this? He's writing to the second generation then of Israel from the time that he first started with them. These people that he's writing to are the ones who would have been kids during the time of the Exodus. They would have seen the ten plagues. They would have seen crossing as a little child, walking through the Red Sea and seeing these walls of water on two sides of them and getting across to safety and watching Pharaoh's army be drowned in front of them. They watched God provide in the wilderness time and time and time again. And they also saw their parents do a very poor job of modeling faith and modeling obedience for them. You don't have to turn there, but I would encourage you to maybe write this down and check here later. Numbers 14 is the ultimate picture of their parents' rebellion. They've come to the promised land. Moses says, God's given this to you. They send spies in. And most of the spies say it's too bad, it's too dangerous. Numbers 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Look at God's response to them in verse 26 then. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, surely you shall not come into the land into which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jehunah, 
and Joshua the son of Nun, your children, this generation that Moses is writing to in Deuteronomy, your children, however, when whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Your sons will be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. Very poor parenting modeled. Direct disobedience of God. And right after he says this, they'll try to go into the land after he said it's not possible. You will not have it. You will die. Forty years, your children will suffer the consequences of your sins. And then I will bring them into the land. And now this generation, these children who watched a faithful God and very unfaithful parents are now being challenged by Moses as they prepare to enter the land. They're being challenged with their parenting, how they are going to train up this next generation. If you look in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, this is Moses saying, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your sons and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his judgments which I commanded you All the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses tells them, I am teaching you this, these commandments and statutes. I am teaching you these things. Why? Verse 2. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is all about how do you train your kids, how do you live well that the next generation might pursue God, might live for God, might not fail like their parents had failed very applicable to us then. How are we to help the next generation? How are we to take them to knowing God? We're going to talk today about five actions God calls those training the next generation to do. Five actions God calls you to do as you build into our kids in this church. First is found in verse 4. Let's remember who God is. Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That seems so short, and that there's so much packed into that. Moses starts and he commands, Hear. This is not the idea of just, just listen. You parents, you understand this. You know, you walk by, you see your kid playing on the, on the TV or whatever, and you're like, time to go clean your room, wrap it up. And you walk by, and you walk back, and they're still playing. You say, did you hear me? You're not worried that they didn't actually hear you. You're worried because they didn't obey. Hearing should lead to obedience. And these first three points we're going to talk through, God puts these very closely tied together. Listen to this, Israel, and apply it to your life. What are they to start with? The Lord, that's, that's the covenant name for God. Yahweh. 
the one who has brought you in covenant with him because of your great, 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 great grandfathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God, he is one. There is no other. We'll talk later this morning about idols. He's saying there is no one else. There is no other God. There is no one to serve. He is one. He's saying, Israel, it starts with your theology. That's a little odd for us because oftentimes we think that theology is something very separate from what we do. However, it's been said, tell me your sin and I'll tell you your wrong view of God. All sin is based out of having a wrong view of God. You see, your orthodoxy, what you believe, should drive your orthopraxy, what you do. In the depths of your heart, what you truly believe, you will naturally live out in your life. Good picture of this. Moses wrote this earlier to the children of Israel. They would remember this. Eve. Eve, in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes to her. Did God really say, can you trust God? Can you really trust God's character? Is he trustworthy? And then from that, oh, this was good for you. Is God really good? Her theology wavers. Her beliefs about who God is and what he has done crumble. And she sins. Your theology matters deeply. What you know about God, what you believe about God, will drive everything else in your life. I talk with the youth kids about this often. We can sort of think it's a a very low-level part of Christian maturity, but it is necessary for all of our lives. How do you know theology? How do you know your God? It starts by getting time in the Word. This is the means by which God has given us the ability to know him, to hear from him, to learn about him, to rejoice and delight in him. It is found solely in his word. There is nothing else that can take us to him and cause us to be able to interact with him well, to have right theology. And the children's nursery rhyme, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, 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 while it sounds very young and childish, is very applicable to us. How do you know your God? How do you remember your God? You get time with him. You get time in his word. If you want to train up this next generation to pursue God, it must start with you, and it must start with you knowing your God and getting time with your God. That then builds out, as we talked earlier, these points build out of each other. So our second point then is that you would love God with your all. As you think and ponder and know who God is, it will start to affect your life. Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. I've got a diagram here. This is what I use to picture when I, when I thought of this, and I think this is oftentimes what comes to mind. You've got sort of three separate parts to yourself, heart, soul, and might. Maybe it's like your feelings and your thinking and then your actions. Um, 
Biblically, though, I, I don't see that to be the model here. I've got this next diagram. This is a much more biblical understanding of what is being talked about. It's not a pie diagram. It's concentric circles that are building out based on the previous one. Your heart can be defined as your inner self, your inner man. It contains our modern idea of the mind, the will, the heart. The things that we talk about when we talk about those things are what is contained in this term heart here in verse 5. It's where you think. It's where you reason. It's where you desire. The center of yourself. And it builds out. Love God with the core of your being. Then what do you love God with? With all your soul. Genesis 2-7 helps us define soul. When, when God is forming Adam, it says he takes Adam and he forms him from the dust of the ground and breathes into him the breath of life and man becomes a living soul. It's your being, your personhood, your very life, everything that makes you, you. So it starts with the heart. Love God with my heart, my core, my being. Love God with my entire personhood. And then thirdly, with all of my might. There is, there is no good English word to translate this. So I made up some. Just for the fun of it. Uh, it would be like, love God with your muchness. With your exceedingness. With your veryness. It's talking about the absolute periphery. Everything you are and have at your disposal. It's the entire extent of your abilities stretched out as far as possible. Actions you do, things you think, all that is available to you. What you own. It's saying you are to love God with the core of your being. It should then permeate out to loving him with all that you are. And that should stretch out and apply to every area of all of your life entirely. Did you hear the extensiveness of that? There's nothing left out. And look at this then in verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. What has he just commanded? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And where is that supposed to be placed? Not in the might, not in the soul, but in the heart. Your theology, what we just talked about, is to be placed in the very depth of yourself as you ponder and think about who God is, what he has done. It should permeate out then to you loving him with your heart, loving him with your soul, loving him with your all, your everything. It affects all areas of your life, and it starts with knowing who God is, and that translates into me loving God with all that I am. Nothing left out. Jesus talks about this. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing, too. Translates over. Out of the abundance of the heart, literally you think of a glass and the water is coming into it and it's overflowing. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth 
speaks. Your actions are a result of what's going on within you. It proves by what you do what is going on within you. God says, I want you to think about me, to remember me. I want you to love me. That should reflect in all of your actions. And then third, you should teach God's word diligently. Verses 7 through 9. You shall teach them diligently. This is the commands. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You shall teach God's word diligently. And notice this teaching. It is a natural outpouring. I know God. I love God. That generates out into all of my life as I live it out and I start to teach about God. Parents, youth leaders, all the church called to build into our kids. You don't want to be a hypocrite. You don't want to be telling your kids one thing while you're doing the other thing. Start by knowing your God. Let that permeate into your heart so you love your God. Translate out into your life. And as you are living that out faithfully, then you have earned the right to diligently talk to your kids and teach your kids the wonders of our God. He uses four different comparisons here as he talks about this. He says, first, you shall sit, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way. The idea is when you're relaxing, when you're working. Whatever it is you're doing, sitting, walking, you're talking constantly. God is being brought to mind and to the lips. Whatever you do, when you lie down and when you rise up, it's the start of the day and the end of the day. It caps it off like Christ is called the Alpha and the Omega. The very beginning of your day and translates all the way through to the very end of your day. Sunrise to sunset. The whole day is to be comprised of you diligently talking about your God. Talks about it shall be on your hands. Between your eyes. Is this just because God wants you to be sort of fashionable? He wants the the Jews to have this cool decor about themselves. Because the Jews to this day, there are some Jews who still have these on their hand and on their forehead. I would suggest this is something much more important than just wearing something. If you go to Deuteronomy, keep your fingers in here, but you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 7. God is giving rules, and one of the things that occurs is if a man dies in the field, so he's outside of the city limits, and there's sort of these two cities, and this guy is, they find a dead man in the field. What do you do with him? How do you determine guilt? Who, who did it? What they would do is they would measure the distance between the body and the, and, and the cities, determine the closest city, and the leaders of that city would come out and say this, 21 verse 7. And they shall answer and say, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Eyes and hands. What are they saying? They're saying, We are guiltless in this. We did not attack this person with our hands. We did no action against them. And we had no knowledge of what was going on. It wasn't that we sat here and watched and saw what was going on and chose not to intervene. 
We are guiltless of this man's death. You go back to Deuteronomy 6. What does this mean for us? He's saying that these things are to affect every action. They're on your hand. Everything you go and you do is to be affected by who God is. He says it should be between your eyes, on your forehead. Everything you see, you think, everything you know is to be affected by who God is. It should envelop all of your life, your actions, the things, that your perceptions that you take in and see and know. And finally, he talks about the doorposts and the gates. And again, I don't think God is here primarily worried about having little home decorations on the doorpost so it looks nice when people enter your house. Doorposts are the sign of, of a personal private dwelling. That's why at Passover, in Exodus 12, God has every family kill a lamb and take the blood and stick it on the doorpost of their house to protect their firstborn. Your personal life, the doorpost, represents your area, your domain. He says it should be on the doorpost, but he also says it shall be on your gates. The gates of the city are the public area where public life and social life occur. You think about the book of Ruth. Boaz has to go to the gates of the city and there they determine whose wife Ruth will be and whose land, who will gain a Limelech's land. Proverbs 31, it talks about how the, the husband of the Proverbs 31 woman is praised in the gates. It's the public arena. What he's saying, whether it's your private life at home or your public life in the gates of the city, God is to permeate all of it. God is to be what you talk about. What you speak of should affect how you live in all these areas. And you're not just speaking then, but you're also modeling and living this out. The question comes, though, what happens if, if our kids get bored? What happens if our kids get bored of hearing about God? If we're talking about him all the time, don't we run a risk of, of getting them bored with God? I would challenge you, God is not boring. Nor is his word. The only reason why we would ever be bored of God is because we have such a small view of him. Such a large view of ourselves and other things. God is eternal. We will spend eternity Learning about an eternal God. Heaven will not be boring. We have eternity to learn about an eternal God. But oftentimes, why does this seem boring? We'll get to this in the next point some, but it's because we have a love for other things, for lesser things. Our joy in God and our love for Him is robbed. We need God intricately involved in all of our life. As we teach and train up the next generation, our knowledge of God and who He is leads to a love of Him that permeates out and affects our all and causes us then to act and speak 
diligently all the time in every way, in every area of our life about him as we interact with those in the younger generations. And now there's this warning, the fourth point in 10 through 19, guard against other loves. Moses warns Israel, you're doing well, but be careful. Verse 10, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, verse 12, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Keep going in a second, but there's this huge danger that first we are to watch ourselves lest we forget our God. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it does not point us to the ultimate thing that is God. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it does not point us to the ultimate person of God. God gives us many Good gifts, just as he has given Israel here. Lands, it's fully furnished. Your house is ready to go. Just move in. Move in ready. Don't forget your God, Israel. One author says that all the things that we have in our life are to be like little arrows that point back up to God. There is nothing in your life that is there simply for itself or simply for you. Everything in your life is given to point you back to the giver. We need to remember God in all things. Think about the little things, the the things that we perceive. Colors. God didn't have to let us see colors. And yet we, we delight in colors. Today's Memorial Day. We have the red, white, and blue. There are certain colors that we associate. Green and red and white are for Christmas. We associate these things and we rejoice in these things. And we can wear different colors of clothing because, just because. Because our God is good and has given us those things. Sights that we can partake in art and see things. And recognize things of, of higher value than other things. That we can hear, excuse me, that we can hear music and rejoice and, and, and delight in these things. Smells, you know, there are, we've got farmers here. Sometimes smells are not so nice as you're driving by the fields and, you know, it's just been freshly manured. But there's other smells that we love. You think of smelling breakfast in the morning as it's cooking. God gives us all these things, these little things, and we can just ignore him with them and just be apathetic about them, or every one of these things can be used to point us to him, to think about him, to ponder him, to delight all the more in him. He's given us the the bigger things. Car, food, money, security, health, things that we oftentimes take for granted or just assume that, you know, I've done this. I work hard to 
earn these things. No. They've been given to you by your God. They should point you back to Him. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 talks about this, that he partakes in all good things. And how does he do this? How does he worship in his partaking of all things, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God? How does he do that? With thankfulness. Do you really think about why you thank God for your food before you eat? Is it to recognize him? Or just to sort of, did that. We always do that. That's our habit. We just got done with it. Or is it to say this food that is good that I'm about to taste and enjoy has been given to me by my Father in His loving kindness that is allowing me to have this, to be able to enjoy this, to be able to partake of this? Does it point you back to God? Gifts God gives should cause us to look to Him. Gifts should drive us to love the giver. And yet, oftentimes, we just simply get apathetic and get busy and we forget. And here's then the danger of that because it goes on, verse 13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods, the peoples who surround you. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God in the midst of you, is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. The fear is that not only do you forget God and grow apathetic, but that actually what ends up happening is you turn from God. People are worshipers. You are a worshiper. You are always and will always worship something or someone. You cannot help it. You have been created as a worshiper. And if it is not God that you are worshiping, you will naturally revert to worshiping something else. If you have forgotten about God and ignored God, you have become an idolater. None of you are bowing down to a block of wood, probably, or some golden thing in your house. But there is a great potential that there are other things that you're worshiping. It's not an if question. It's a who or what are you worshiping question. Maybe things, people, perceptions about us. There is nothing that kills our joy in God quicker and more effectively than an idol. Nothing that will ruin your heart for that which is worthwhile and eternal than a temporary, fickle, fleeting love. Of something that does not love back and will not satisfy. The result then in verse 15, God is jealous. He will not stand for it. God will not be placed as an equal to any other. God is holy and above all others. He will not tolerate that. 
James 4 says that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. There is no middle ground. You cannot love God and yet cling to your idol. You cannot hold to these things and yet say, Oh God, I love you. We're in good terms. We're in good relationship. It's not possible. They're mutually exclusive. And God will act to rid you of that if you do not. God will not be mocked. He will not tolerate idolatry. How do you know if something is an idol? Are you willing to sin to get it, to do it? Is it something that you would be willing to do almost anything for? Something that holds your heart. And if there's something that God is bringing to mind, then you need to think through, how do I deal with it? I encourage you, the very first part is to stop. To set this thing aside. And then second, go back to our first point. Look at your God. Change your thinking about your God. And let his love once again permeate your heart and grow out into your life. You cannot hold to both. So first, we're to remember our God. Second, we're to love Him with our wholeness. Third, we're to teach God's word. Fourth, we're to guard against our loves. And then fifth, we're to attest to God's goodness. Look at verses 20 through 25. When your son asks you, Time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed us great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. The son asks the question in verse 20, in verse 21 through 25, and his response talks about God's goodness. What does he talk about first? Verses 20 through 21, he refers to God's might and reminds him, tells his son about his workings in Egypt, what he did, ten plagues to show his power above any God that Egypt might have, and then bringing them through the Red Sea and killing an entire army right in front of them. Tells him about God's faithfulness that God promised back to the their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers that he would give them this land and he has brought them into it. They are getting prepared to enter it. He tells them about God's present goodness, his kindness there in verse 24, that it would be for their good always that they would survive. He tells them about God's future goodness, 
verse 25, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. What this is not saying is, son, if we obey these things, we'll get saved. This is not talking about works-based righteousness. No one has ever been saved by works. The Old Testament understanding of salvation is the same as the New Testament understanding of salvation. It has always been by faith. The Old Testament saints believed in God's promise, just as the New Testament saints believe in God's promise. Their promise that they believe in is in Genesis 3.15, that there is one seed who will come from the woman and deal with sin once and for all. It will be dealt with. We see that Abraham, and Paul talks about this multiple times. James talks about this. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. What this is saying is as we live in faith, we are proving what has already occurred in us, that we are trusting in our God to provide us with the righteousness that we need. This leads us to our last point then. As you hear these things, it's a little overwhelming, hopefully. Love God with your entire being, all that you are, all you're supposed to talk about, think about, do with the kids that you work with and care for in this church is to talk about and teach them of God's goodness. All of it. Everything. And hopefully you come to the end of this and you're like, I can't do that. And God says, I agree. You can't do that. That is the very hope of the gospel. It is impossible to parent on your own. It is impossible to lead the kids of this church on your own. Here's the hope. Deuteronomy 31, 16. Let's talk about a little bit further more what happens back then. In Deuteronomy 31, 16, this is what the Lord says to Moses. Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land, into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. God tells Moses, right at the end of this book, Israel is going to sin, Israel is going to fall away. You have just commanded them how to train their kids, their kids are going to fail miserably. In the book of Judges, we see that after Joshua, there arises another generation that did not know God. They didn't have that relationship with him. And everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Chapter 5, verse 29 says this, Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. The promise here, or the problem here, is that they do not have a heart that is changed to love God, either as the people that are training or the kids themselves. And yet within that, God gives this promise of hope. In chapter 30, verse 6, the Lord says this to Moses. He talks about how Israel is going to fall away, be taken captive, be restored to the land, and he gives this promise. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Moses foretells the coming of the new covenant where the heart and soul of man is now changed and empowered by the Holy Spirit living within him to enable him to love God as he ought. And it's all made possible through the cross. Here is our hope then. For those who are training and teaching, you will fail. But God will not. It is all forgiven. And your failures are even a chance for you to point your kids to the cross. Second of all, you cannot change your kids' hearts. But God, through Christ, can change them and delight them in himself. God has called each of us as a part of his family to love and build into the children in this church. This is done by remembering who he is, by loving him with our all, by teaching of him diligently, by guarding against other loves, and by attesting to his goodness. All this while remembering it is only by his power that you and the children we build into will ever value God as we should. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and the hope that it gives because of Christ that we have direction and can function in faith, training the generation to come. Lord, help us. We cannot do this of ourselves. We need you. Would you work in this church? Would you empower us? Would you empower our parents? love you, to live for you, to know you, and to teach of you faithfully with our kids. We ask all this because of Christ. Amen.